Uh, hello, my name is Daniel Byman with Georgetown University and the Brookings Institution, and I'm here with Noreen Chowdhury-Fink, the Executive Director of the Soufan Center. And we're going to discuss the international dimensions of right-wing terrorism and violence today. And Noreen, uh, why don't you kick us off? Uh, tell us about your assessment of the international, I will say, aspects of this movement. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be with you today, albeit virtually. Um, I think, you know, when we think about um, the sort of far right movement um, and violent extremist groups on the far right spectrum, we do rightly consider it largely a domestic problem in, in many countries. And for most countries, you know, certainly here in the U.S., we talk about it as domestic terrorism. But we are seeing increasingly linkages that are on the ideological side on the financial side, um, and in many cases on the operational side, of course, some of which may be dampened by COVID travel restrictions, but we are seeing quite a lot of ideological and, and financial movement, right? And that leads us to the question of responses. Most of the time we're focused on domestic responses and how countries deal with it. But of course, when we're talking about transnational linkages, what kinds of international tools do we have to deal with it? Now, for 20 years, we've focused on Al-Qaeda and ISIS-inspired terrorism. We've built up a robust international framework through the UN and other partnerships. So my, my argument would be that, you know, we're not starting from scratch. We have quite a lot of tools we can consider already um, in dealing with some of these transnational linkages. So one thing that makes me, it's hard to be optimistic in the type of work we do, but one thing that makes me a bit more optimistic is the Biden administration is clearly prioritizing this threat. So we've seen a lot of action from the Department of Justice at home, Homeland Security, the FBI. And my sense is that we're going to go basically from pretty close to zero on the international front to at least efforts to improve intelligence and law enforcement coordination to some degree, maybe not you know, near the levels for jihadist terrorism. But, but there is something that will be going on, presumably drawing from the jihadist world. Um, one problem for the US, of course, is that um, there is a First Amendment issue that comes up because many of these um, groups and causes have deep roots in the United States and you have a right to be awful you know, it's um, awful, but lawful is the, the phrase I keep using. <laughs> um, so one question for you, to which I've been pondering is, how do we think about the role of social media companies in this space, which are the transmitters of so much of the ideological hatred across the world? Sure. Well, that's a, a tough one you started off with. Um, I think, you know, there are very different approaches in different countries, and we've already seen a lot of efforts to try and find convergence. We've seen in Europe, you know, and Europe and places like the UK, a much harder line on online extremism and certainly things that would give us pause here in the United States, given that First Amendment protection. Um, so we've seen the formation of a lot of, you know, voluntary kind of um groups of tech firms and and policymakers and government officials i think the best example is the global internet forum to counter terrorism and then you have platforms like tech versus terrorism so i think trying to reconcile the particular circumstances of the us with some of the partnerships we have abroad where they are you know prepared to take a stronger line the most we can ask for, and I think the most important is this kind of voluntary grouping of tech firms so that there's some kind of uniform code of conduct or some mutually agreed um, 
protocols for what they do because you know as you say it's one thing to take care of it here in the united states um if no one's doing something in another country and vice versa and we've certainly seen in terms of research a lot of the you know a lot of the malicious groups do know that they have greater leeway in the U.S., and so this is the locus of their activities. So I, I, I put a lot of faith in some of these voluntary organizations and, and some of the positive steps tech firms have been trying to take um, recently. So one thing that makes me, again, a bit more optimistic maybe than I should be is that what we saw on the jihadist side is after the United States and other governments began to go after the international linkages, whether it was um, travel or communication or fundraising, um, it actually proved to be a tremendous vulnerability for many of these people. And so people at home who were before below the radar screen were detected because they had some international connection. And um, so one thing that I, I think may happen for at least some of these organizations is international links, while at times a tremendous opportunity for them, could also prove an operational vulnerability, um, leaving them exposed uh, to law enforcement. And also, um, they'll be breaking additional laws. There are a lot of federal laws that are international as opposed to more state-focused ones. Um, is there anything you feel that people should really know about this threat to kind of end our conversation on? I mean, I think that these groups really, we've seen them learn and adapt, right? You you prescribe them, they change their name, you you put some roadblocks, they'll find a, a workaround. So I think some of the most important things first you mentioned was, first of all, to name the threat and understand it, and then understand where the workarounds might be so that we can preempt it. It's certainly important to raise the stakes of entry into terrorism, and that's something we can do. That's, that's a suitable way to end it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dan.